Ready to revolutionize your higher ed marketing game? Yes! Well, then don't miss out on Element 451's Engage Summit, June 27 and 28. Explore the cutting-edge world of education and AI technology and unleash your creativity like never before. Register today at engage.element451.com and use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. Three higher ed authors, 100-plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio, back with you in another episode Oh boy, I was reading this morning. If you read the news, um, I get Google alerts all about higher education every day. So uh, when I sit down and have breakfast uh, with my wife and kids, I'm reading all these articles about higher education. And uh, one that caught my eye today, and you're going to see this um, manifesting itself. You've probably seen it by now as this episode comes out. There's a flagship university called West Virginia University. And in the news today, Gordon Gee, the president of West Virginia, announces $75 million of cuts to the institution to ready them for the future of higher education. Um, they're over overbuilt. Uh, and I think that's a story for a lot of colleges and universities today. Uh, we know that because M&A, um, M&A, M&A, mergers and acquisitions are discussed much more in higher education than they ever have been before. And we see stories, what, probably every week of another college that's either merged or acquired. Um, we're having conversations about financial sustainability much more often uh, than institutions were 10 years ago. We know there's an enrollment cliff. We know there's COVID impact. We know there's less uh, students in college. There just is a lot. And um, colleges, for the most part, for the most part, they have money. And that money that they have is typically in some type of an endowment fund. And the idea would be, and we'll talk to our guest about this, that you take money that's in an endowment fund and that money makes more money. And with that more money that you make, then you reinvest that or you become self-sustaining for the future. Uh, you become future-proofed uh, against uh, uh, market and financial fluctuations. Is that true? How does this all work? Who the heck manages all this stuff? And when you're having a multi-million dollar, hopefully you have a multi-million dollar or billion dollar endowment, we brought on an expert today to talk about what the heck is going on in this endowment world. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. He's John Griffith. He's the endowment specialist or an endowment specialist at Hurdle Callahan. What's going on, John? How are you? Uh, it's great to be here. I'm excited to get Ed up today. Oh, I, I love it. Uh, you know, it's full, we always like to level set, John, you know this. What is Hurdle Callahan? What what do you do? How do you do it? Yeah, so uh, thank you for having me. So uh, Hurdle Callahan is a chief investment officer firm. And um, th th we founded that space about 35 years ago. And the idea of a chief investment officer firm is to kind of democratize the um, best investment offices in the world. So think of a, a an Ivy League investment office, only we provide services to uh, the average average clients. Now, people, um, we have clients who are up to a billion and a half dollars and some that have uh, 20 million dollar endowments. And so we uh, we provide the same level of investment expertise, access to manager, low manager fees that you would get if you were uh, a Harvard or Yale, but we do that for the average endowment. But wow. Okay. So what what kind of um what kind of 
amounts are we talking about here that Hurdle Callahan manages for institutions that cross the U.S.? Are we yeah, talking so, a couple of million recop? You know, probably not. Probably more than that, right? Yeah. So, um, so we manage in total about twenty billion dollars in assets. Um, money. Money, and our clients range in size from um, a billion and a half to um, you know twenty twenty million. And the what the idea of what we do is we provide independent investment service regardless of the size um, to our clients. And so, it, uh, unlike where most people are limited in what you can invest in because the best managers only want to work in large quantities, large quantities. If you invest in large quantities, you get lower fees. Um, and obviously the larger your organization, the better experts you can hire to, you know, make more money. And so the advantage of being, of being a smaller part of a $20 billion organization is that you get the benefits of a $20 billion organization, even if you have a hundred million dollar endowment. Okay, so let's let's get to benefits because this is a this is an interesting conversation. We'll talk about higher education and its future in a little bit. But why would I want if I'm if I'm an institution and I'm I say lucky enough if I'm lucky enough to have twenty million dollars or more that I want to invest and that I'm probably investing. What was the benefit to having a chief investment officer like Hurdle Callahan behind me? Wouldn't my CFO do this? Wouldn't my in-house financial people do it? I, I mean, you know, what's the give me the landscape of how this typically works yeah so um it, your your cfo traditionally is too busy to do it so that's kind of a, a really old model I, I was a college cfo and you're too, too busy to do that you had a lot of other things going on there's no time to manage that plus it's a different level of expertise um you know it's access to managers it's making investment decisions based on you know market uh, moves and what's happening in the market and the outlook and Fed funds rate. And, and there's so much to it that if you go back 30 years ago, when I started in this business, there were two asset classes, there were stocks and bonds. And then people started saying, well, maybe we could even invest in international stocks. And then from there, it became hedge funds and real asset funds and private equity and venture capital and you know, and, and crypto funds, and it, it's there's never ending. So the con the sophistication of investment options has exploded, and so you really cannot on? you really cannot do it without a, a sophisticated team. And yeah, I mean, you know, you know, universities, and I know this um, because I've talked to many people just just like you, where it's like they're investing in lots of other stuff that you wouldn't typically think that a university might um, might invest in. And it takes an expert to do that. You, you need to have significant expertise because money moves, right? Money just doesn't sit. You have to move it. You have to watch market fluctuations and so on. That, that means though, that if you have somebody who's watching this, that means there's opportunities for, and there's risks against, or I'm gonna say against, there's risks to that money. What are some of the opportunities, some of the risk factors that are either helping or threatening endowments these days because boy oh boy we can't lose money in endowments we're already losing too many students yeah so um so it's a great question so i think of investment risk you can't look at investment risk in isolation and so i like to say to people would you rather you know increase your equity exposure in your endowment or count on your enrollment person to bring in 10 extra students at a lower discount rate next year and so and if you think about the risks we used to generate all of our growth from enrollment. And, and as enrollment growth becomes much more difficult and that tuition sh is shrinking, 
people are looking to the endowment to provide that growth engine in the future, which is putting more pressure on people to increase their investment returns. Can you talk about restricted, unrestricted? Because a lot of endowment money is restricted. And I, I don't think unless, you know, you, somebody who's worked in advancement or maybe in finance, and there's a lot of folks throughout higher education that hear these terms thrown around, restricted, unrestricted, operational dollars, and what can I use, what can't I use, how do I take money out if we need it? And an endowment is is typically overseen by a board, right? The board has uh, access to it, so there's board. Can you talk about how, how the internal structure works typically from your experience? Yeah, sure. So th there's, there's a wide confusion that legally, an endowment is a donor gives you a gift. It's a gift in perpetuity where you can spend the interest in dividends or, or some kind of a low spending rate off it, but you can never spend the principal. So I give you huh. the idea is I give you a, a million dollar gift that funds a, a $50,000 scholarship. Uh, next year, your million dollar gift will be worth a million five hundred million fifty and then it will provide a little bit more money as the cost of the scholarship goes up so the idea is i endow a scholarship today that scholarship will be able to be funded uh, forever because as the market grows the endowment the spending will grow as you increase it so but what we've what we've done to our endowment is we now basically throw in a lot of other money you have operating surpluses that schools put in um, that added to the endowment you have gifts that someone's given to you that didn't, what isn't endowed, and you choose to put it in the endowment. So sometimes when you say endowment, what you're really talking about is long-term investments. It's the assets you put aside for long-term investments. The restricted endowment, our donors had restricted it for you, but um, a lot of the money can be unrestricted. And so it's, it's interesting. Most people assume that endowments are grown through gifts. Uh, the reality is a lot of endowments are grown through operating surpluses and kind of saving, saving your money. What do you do with your operating surplus at the end of the year? Um, you spend it on facilities or you put it in the endowment. Okay, so, uh, so I've, got, um, I've got a donor. They give me a million dollars. It's restricted and, and to your point in perpetuity it's supposed to grow every year and i'm not going to touch that million but if i make fifty thousand dollars on it maybe i'm giving on a twenty five thousand dollar scholarship and i have twenty five thousand dollars left over that continues to grow and so on or my university makes a profit or a surplus depending on which uh what you want to call it and i take that million dollars of margin and i decide to invest that and call that part of my endowment which it, what does endowment mean actually is it just a savings account is it you know what's the definition of an endowment well so uh, you know there's the legal definition that i gave you but i think most people use the endowment as a long-term investment pool it's the assets you've put aside that you don't intend to spend and you intend to invest in the future um, that's not to say if it's unrestricted, if it's your, your operating surpluses you put in, the board can vote to take that money out. Um, and so it's an important part of my job is to make sure I understand what are the components within the endowment. So it's not just an endowment fund. There are different pools of money that have different purposes. Interesting. And so how do you work typically? To, and so if you're working with a board, the board comes to you and says, hey, look, we're thinking about taking money out of our endowment or maybe the board doesn't or the president comes to you and says you go no 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 no, don't do that because the, because of the market or you go you um, know this is a great time for you to take money out are you typically is it is it proactive is it reactive depending on how um the requests move through you i'm sure you're getting a lot of requests for how much is this and what is that and how much does this go up and you know all that 
Yeah, so your, your question gets to what we do that's special at Hurdle Callahan, which is we do in-depth planning with our clients. So my background is not in investments. I'm a former college CFO who works to make sure that our investment people understand what are the strengths and weaknesses of the colleges we work with? What's the probability they're going to ask to take a bunch of money out for facilities? So we look uh. and see how are you, you know, how do you fund your facilities? Do, you know, do you have debt capacity? Do you have donors that are going to give it to you? Do you have you have money set aside in your operating budget for it? So if you are an organization that has a likelihood of wanting to take a large amount of money out of your endowment not just your annual spend, but some large amount for capital, then we're going to invest you in a different way than we would invest someone who says, no, nope, we're going to, we got debt capacity, we got donors, we're not going to use any of our endowment money for this. And so what I like to do with clients is segregate that money. If there's money that you might take out, then maybe you need, you need a different asset allocation than you do for your permanent endowment or money that you don't intend to take out. And so I think the mistake some people make is they throw that all in the same pool of money and then and it's inappropriate because some some need to be invested for the long term and sometimes if there's a possibility of you taking the money out we have a, a different investment strategy for those i think that's right that's pretty i think that's pretty common in in higher ed as, as you talk to folks and if they're not in the finance office or have that level of financial savvy if a school has a 500 million dollar endowment you think that it's all sitting in one account worth $500 million and you're just taking it out like your savings, like you're paying your bills. Yeah. But what we're really talking about is short-term liquid assets. We're talking about all different types of CDs, annuities. I mean, I've seen, I know colleges that have bought gold and silver and all, all sorts of uh, investments like that. But what you're talking about is how is the financial profile of the institution reflecting how they invest their money. What, what are we gonna do short-term that we need liquid cash for? What do we not need to do? And let's that put that money away. That makes, that makes, that makes what? Schools more responsive? It makes them more flexible um, if they need that money, um, especially if they're not as well off as other schools, right? And so that you must have smaller schools that maybe have a more flexible spend allocation or, or investment allocation than maybe those that have a billion and a half um, probably don't need as much uh, flexibility, right? Well, so you, you've hit on one of the one of the major um, fallacies, which is you don't invest your endowment based on the size. And so the Nakubo benchmark study always, you know, ranks you know schools of under twenty five million, twenty five to fifty, and that's a it, it's the easiest way to compare. But what really matters is you should invest based on your individual school's facts and circumstances. And so it, it, to get your asset allocation correct, you need to do an assessment of what are the strengths and weaknesses? How large are your reserves? Do you have debt capacity? Do you have operating margin? How much are you spending from your endowment? What percentage of your income comes from your endowment? And so you pull all those things together along with some of the discussion about your capital plans to decide how much risk can an organization take? And so you could have an organization that's got a 25 million dollar endowment that can take more risk than an organization with a hundred million dollar endowment. And so the, that's the, a fact. That's a fact. And so go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I I'm thinking through this and I'm um, by the way, I'm fascinated by this because I um, do universities in general understand that they need to be, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but proactive and have incredible strategic foresight with the money that they do have in an endowment. 
or is there like is it more like oh we have an endowment and it's you know over here i mean can you talk about that is there a convincing process that you have to go through like hey so and so xyz university if you don't do these things you're going to be hurting later and and you know what's the response like I, I just wonder if there's a, just this deep understanding of, yes, thank you, John, for your advice. We have a very aggressive uh, portfolio of investment with X, Y, Z, and Bs and As. It doesn't seem like it'd be as clean as that. Yeah, it's it, well, it, it's not as clean as that, I think. So we have a structure that we go through that talks about what is your objective in your endowment fund? What are you trying to achieve? And then we look at your ability to take risk. Then we look at your willingness to take risk. And so let me walk you through an example. So we had a, a, a school in California, university was in very good financial shape. They were spending a pretty low, less than 4% from their endowment. Uh, they had a pretty conservative asset allocation um, and their rationale was, well, we are only spending 4%, so we don't really need to have that aggressive of an asset allocation. And so the planning that I did with them focused on what are the needs of the university? And it took a while to get to it, but eventually one of the trustees said, we're really concerned about this demographic cliff. You've heard yes. of this, the demographic cliff that's coming, Joe? Um, uh, I, I haven't heard about it. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it was news to me as well. Um, and so they were really concerned about it, but it was California, that cliff is in 10 years. Yeah. And so they were worried about that. And I said, well, if there was ever a reason to increase your equity exposure, it would to prepare yourself to fund the democratic cliff, the demographic cliff in 10 years. And so it. as soon as we gave them a reason, a purpose to increase their equity allocation, they did. And so they mistakenly believed their objective was to spend 4%. What they didn't understand was the endowment could help solve another problem for them. So you really can't, you can't just go to a, a board and say, we think you should take more investment risk because you'll earn more money. You really have to have a process, think it through, reassure them what would happen. I'd exercise I do with clients is what would happen if there's a 30% drop in the endowment? What, and mm. Work with the CFO and come up with a plan and, and look at that. And the reality is the, the concern you have over a 30% drop in the endowment is much great than, greater than the reality of it. Are but you sure? I'm positive. Yeah, I know you are. Um, when you say go to a board, are you do you typically go to a board or you or somebody from Hurdle Callahan goes to a board and says, hey, this is what we, we think you should do? Is there a representative of a board? Do they have an investment uh, committee of some kind that you're dealing with? You know, because board structures can be very different. Can you talk about your portfolio of clients and how that communication typically flows to you and Hurdle Callahan? Yeah, so traditionally the, um, the, the boards have investment committees. And the investment committees uh, worked with the outsource provider to um, determine, make investment decisions and asset allocation. So we are a fully discretionary firm. So we make investment decisions on behalf of our clients. So we don't go back to investment committees and say, you know, do you think we should do this or think we should do that? We, we make those decisions ourselves and then work with knowing what you know, they're, they're our clients. So we know what they want and know what they're trying to achieve. And, but we don't ask every move we make is not, we're not granted permission for it. Our work with them is mostly about helping to understand their needs and their objectives over the long term, not focused on whether this fund is better than that fund. And so the mistake that investment committees have made in the past is spending all their time arguing over, you know, which is the best large cap manager. 
Um, and the asset allocation that you have bring is a, that results in 92% of your investment returns. And so we focus on talking about the asset allocation because that's where the real value is, optimizing your asset allocation, uh, arguing whether this manager is better than that manager provides very little value in the long term. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Don't settle for average marketing strategies. Join us at the Element 451 Engage Summit, June 27 and 28, and discover how to harness the power of AI technology in higher ed marketing, connect with industry leaders, explore cutting-edge technologies, and future-proof your marketing strategy. Use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off. Register now at engage.element451.com. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing. Uh, so said John, uh, talk about, you know, we always, is fascinating. Like, does a college president get involved in this? Is this, you know, cause we talk about what's the profile of a leader for the future. And typically if you're, you know, the, the path to a presidency, um, a traditionally has been through academics and it's a Dean and it's provost and it's, you know, president. And then you talk about something like this and, and you go, is this more sales and finance? And there's so many facets to the job. Is the president, from your experience, typically involved in this, understand it, uh, aware? Is there is it a spectrum? Is it the board that really is more, more doing this? Uh, talk about involvement from a university perspective. Yeah, so the, the primarily um, it's the board and the CFO. Um, presidents are involved, um, and I think they should be involved because no one is better describing what the needs of the university or college are than the president. And so I'm I'm working with a school now in Pittsburgh and the, um, the president's on this small committee to look at this. And he's very articulate on what the vision is and what needs to happen. And we're looking to increase the equity exposure for this client, which is risk to the president, right? His, you know, his, his, he may get more funding, but you know, markets don't always go up, and so it could get less funding. And so it's critical that he understand the risk, but also help us understand what is he trying to achieve. And so, uh, it, presidents do not need to understand why this hedge fund is different than that hedge fund, or what the difference between private equity and venture is, but. The investment committee should be run in such a way that even the uh, someone who doesn't know anything about investments can understand what's happening at the institution, understand risks, understand trade-offs. And investment committees should be managed in a way that trustees who are not investment experts have a say on, on what we do. I was just going to ask that. Do, trust, do the boards that you're typically working with have board members with expertise in this, I, I would say this in finance, um, is, you know, where, where the dialogue isn't just one way where there's a deep understanding of what this means or, or boards not, you know, cause higher ed boards, there's a lot of makeups of boards and sometimes they don't all have the expertise needed to operate in all areas. Do you have, is it a spectrum? I mean, there's, I'm sure there's so many different kinds, but typically is there a, is there enough knowledge on a board? Or, or you're educating as you go along? 
yeah, educating as you go along. So traditionally, a board will have a few members and yeah, he or she, um, but you know, who really do understand investments in a deep way. And then you might have other people who might be in the investment field. Um, you know, a, a great example was a friend of mine was on a, a board and they made her the investment chair. Well, she's a banker who loans money to hedge funds. So is she in finance? Yes. Does she know anything about managing an endowment? No. Yikes. So you've got finance experts, but you don't necessarily have people who manage money professionally. I get it. All right. So here's one of the big questions I've had. I've kind of saved it. Are endowments going up or are endowments going down, John? I mean, you know, what, what what's going on with higher education endowments right now? Well, I think that there is more focus on the endowments providing a growth engine to institutions. And then the Kubo Benchmark Survey for, um, has for years asked, what's your targeted return? What are you trying to achieve? And for about a decade, it was a seven. Seven percent was what your targeted return is. Uh, a year ago, that went from seven to seven and a half, then it went up to eight. Now, this latest report was 8.3. And so boards are really looking for higher return and, and thus need to have more private assets in their endowment. They need to have more equity exposure and they need to dial down their bond exposure. And so there's a lot of pressure. I mean, that 7% required return had been steady for decades and suddenly it's now at 8.3. And so that tells you the pressure that endowments are now feeling to grow. And so to answer your questions, endowments are growing. Do you think that's a, do you think that's a direct response? Do you think there's any correlation between declining enrollment, less tuition fee revenue, and now we've got to look for other revenue streams. We've got an endowment. We can get it by 1%. It's going to offset our loss of students. Is it is a correlation there? Is it discussed in that way with you? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, diversifying your revenue stream. I think the interesting piece is, that, or unfortunate piece, is that uh, you know the time to invest for the future was 10 years ago. And True. so to suddenly decide you want to have a growth portfolio, um, it takes five, 10 years for that to really become a meaningful improvement to the school. That's not to say you shouldn't do it, but it's not an immediate replacement for your students. Is there immediacy and expectation right now? Is there a, yes. hey, hey, yes. hey, John, we, we, need, we need this endowment to grow. We need yeah. it next year. Yeah. And yes. And I think that's, that is really directly related to the the enrollment situation. But you have to remember, 70% of all endowments are less than $100 million. So 70% are less than $100 million. So most schools, the endowment provides 5% or so of their in revenue. So a, a, a significant improvement in their endowment returns will give incremental revenue to the school, but it's not the savior. It's never, few schools will ever be able to be put in a situation where the endowment will be the major solution. Hmm. Do you think that's, I mean, you worked in, you worked in higher ed as a CFO, um, you know, the, the enrollment cliff and the consequences of that are real and schools are already feeling it. The COVID helped it move along, moved consequence along even faster. And 
are endowments, you know, I guess when I say what's happening with endowments, are they slimming? Is there more coming out of those endowments than the past because universities need more cash to operate, move cash to operating funds? Are you seeing more withdrawals? I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, the spend. So what you're asking is, is the spending rate gone up and down? That's exactly what I'm asking. Yeah, you didn't know that. Yeah, thanks for translating. Yeah, yeah. I just want to thank you for teaching me a new word today, Joe. Yes. Um, so, uh, so the spending rate is creeping up a little bit. It, it hasn't creeped up as much as you would expect based on uh, the average endowment spending rate is 4.3%. And, and that's up a little, it was four, it was closer to four, it's gone up a little. Uh, the pandemic did not have a material effect on that. And I think that's oh. because the government funding was so yep. great. And so in Pennsylvania, I, I live in Pennsylvania, the state had said you can spend up to 10% from your endowment if you need to because of COVID. And, Whoa! And very few organizations took advantage of that. Um, first, it's just because it it will really harm your ability to grow the endowment. But they they didn't really need it because the COVID funding from the federal government was so plentiful. Um, so we haven't seen the push up in spending that you would expect. I expect it's going to happen, but it, it if you want to spend more, you need to earn more, and so you can't just decide I want to increase my spending, you have to also increase the equity exposure so you'll earn more money. And so that's the rub that people have. I want, everyone wants more money, but not everyone is willing to take more investment risk. Yeah, right. So make more money, but take more risk. And if you take more risk and you lose money, that's what risk means. It means you're, you, you're taking the opportunity to uh, put yourself in a more vulnerable position uh, with the hope of greater gains, but we know the market's been um, up and down. It's been crazy over the last, you'll even look at the last two years, the fluctuations have been pretty significant. Um, has that changed Has that changed um, the investment strategies much? You know, are people moving to more aggressive strategies? Are they so, nervous? Boards really nervous about what's happening? Is there, okay, no, this is the time to invest and take risk. Is it in the middle? So you're highlighting the, one of the big uh, misconceptions there is, which is- I'm, I'm, I'm asking a lot of these questions. You're, you're providing great questions. So the endowment might go down 30%, but the way we spend the endowment is we use some kind of a smoothing mechanism. So we might take you know, 4% of a 12 quarter average. And so you don't really feel a 30% decline, you might feel a 10% decline. And then that 10% decline in spending also has to be measured against the fact that you only get 5% of your revenue from the endowment. So when you play it all out, it's a $50,000, $100,000 reduction in revenue. And so the mistake people make is they equate the millions of dollars you lost in the stock market um, which is just timing, it's volatility, it comes yep. back um, with what happens on operations. And so the first thing I do when we look and talk about risk is make sure people are looking at risk to the operations, because that's the real risk. Uh, what you're talking about on investment, that's just volatility. Stocks right. go so, up and so down. So you could lose 30% and then in a week you're going to gain that 30% back, but your operations remain sound. But you don't see a lot of uh, a reduction in endowment to fund operations more or less than the past, do you? No, well, it is the, it's the final move that schools do if they really are having funding problems. 
Um, and of course, you can't spend. So remember, you can't spend the restricted endowment. So when right. we're talking about spending endowment. We're talking about spending the unrestricted component. And so that's one of the warning signs you have is how much unrestricted endowment is there left and how quickly has that been being utilized? Is there a, is there a average, you know, if you say of all the endowments that, that you're managing at Hurdle Callahan, uh, typically there's 10% unrestricted and 90% restricted or 90% unrestricted and 10% restricted. Is there like a calc? No, no. Um, so there are schools that are, 95% unrestricted and the schools with 95% restricted. And some of it is the culture of the school. So there's some schools that are deep in history of, of philanthropy and those have more likely have restricted endowments. Other schools have been fortunate enough to have operating surpluses and that's the source of their revenue. And so it, it's usually once it's usually dominated by one of those or the other, um, but the schools that have had the most success, obviously use both approaches. They, they're putting aside operating surpluses and they're also fundraising for the endowment. Wow, I, you know what's why I love having you on? It's, it's this um, part of higher education that is uh, definitely not discussed as much as other parts. Uh, I feel like, you know, we know we teach students and we run admissions and we have retention and we do all of these things, teaching and learning and so on, accreditation, blah, blah. Um, but investment portfolio management is something that exists within higher education, uh, but it doesn't get a, a shining light often until you need it, until you really need it, right? And then it's like, okay, where where's all the money? Um, and, and typically as leaders uh, move up through the ranks in higher education, it's not something you get great exposure to. It's not like they have a course in how, you know, how to manage your endowment um, to prepare you for a presidency. You might fall into this and go, okay, who manages the endowment? You know, and what is it? So it's really great to have you on to give this uh, perspective to us. What else do we need to know about Hurdle Callahan? Anything you want to say about your work there? Open mic. Yeah. So I, what, the most important thing, I the reason one of the reasons I joined Hurdle Callahan is that it is a conflict-free, independent firm. And so, as a fiduciary, uh, you know, as a CFO or as a trustee, I want someone who's making the decisions what's based best for my university. I don't want someone based, making decisions based on what's financially best for them. And so in the financial services industry, the, you know, people, you know, I, I work at JP Morgan, and so I put you on a JP Morgan fund. And so a piece of that fund expenditure comes, revenue comes back to me, or I, uh, you, you do custody in my custody bank, I get a piece back, or I use a manager who gives me a, a, a kickback. Um, and so investment industry is so conflicted with revenue streams coming from different directions and what Hurdle Callahan offers, and, and there are other firms that do, but most do not. Most firms are not independent and are not um, conflict-free. And so what we provide is you pay us a fee and we give you the best investment advice. We tell you, this is the best manager. We're going to invest in this manager. We're not investing in a manager because we have a financial incentive in it. And the uh, the difficult, so it's amazing to me that trustees and fiduciaries focus you said it. on, don't focus on this independence and the, and the conflict-free because being conflict-free means I'm working for my schools. I'm not working for myself. And I, I think that's, we might make the wrong decision, but we didn't make the wrong decision because we had a financial incentive behind it. And so- yeah. And, and by, by the way, one, one last question before I give you the final one to close the episode. Are there schools out there right now where they're internally trying to manage this through a CFO and it's, 
you, you look at it and go, whoa, um, or, or is that not typical that they're using some kind of investment firm? Yeah. So uh, um, 50% of all uh, college universities, maybe it's 52% now, use uh, outsourced chief investment officer firms. So the other um, people either have their own independent investment office or their trustees do it with the advice of a consultant. And so the, the, the issue with the consulting model is that it's not timely. You know, we, I used that, we used that for a while when I was at um, both the University of New Hampshire and at, at Bryn Mawr, and it's just, it's delayed. So but when you have an opportunity in the stock market, you have to have an investment committee, you have to educate all the trustees, and by the time you make a decision, the opportunity may have left you. Yikes! Um, and so, so it, only about 50% of all, it goes up about 2% a year. It, it's it, every year, there's about 2% more that use it. I think it's by far the best model. I think a part-time trustee-led effort is very risky, mostly because you might have a great trustee group now, but there's no guarantee that the next person who chairs your investment committee will be so great. Um, and there's a lot of risk in that, and there's no oversight. So if you're an investment committee, there is no oversight. You are the oversight. But if you hire an outsourced firm like Colonel Callahan, the investment committee provides that oversight. And so there are lots of firms that don't use OCIO um, and, and should. Yeah. And, there, and the regulations and uh, there, there's so many regulations in banking, you know, banking and tax accounting and all, all of those things, very regulation heavy. You have to have great corporate hygiene. Um, there's a lot of benefits to having a, a external chief investment officer because they can take care of a lot of that uh, corporate hygiene, I bet, uh, yeah. as well. The, pa the paperwork and the legal work is enormous. Yeah. And so um, that alone is a reason for someone to decide to outsource. What's uh, What do you see for the future of higher education, John? I mean, you're working with these colleges. Tell us what you see in your crystal ball. So uh, I'll tell you... Uh, what I'm optimistic about, and overall, you know, I, I'm not. I have lots of concerns about higher education, but what what excites me are the um, partnerships and mergers that are happening of strong institutions. Um, you know, Salis University and um, Drexel University announced a partnership the other day, and um, you know, and it, they're both financially strong, and they're doing it for mission region and program reasons, and it will make both institutions stronger. And, you know, I'm, so I'm much more interested in those types of things where people understand the future is cloudy. Let's, let's strengthen our future by making actions today. I, I'm, I'm disappointed or concerned about the schools that are having, that decide too late. Disappointed! To do something. And, and that's just the continuing theme of people, uh, you know, two weeks before they run out of cash, they start looking for a, a merger partner. And that's just sad. Isn't that fascinating, though? I, I've talked about that here in the podcast, but particularly when you're working with um, your nonprofit board versus a versus your for-profit, your for-profit school, as an example, and you're selling your school to anyone. There's a payout, so you have some kind of incentive. As a nonprofit board, the fiduciary responsibility, but there's no incent. There's, there's nothing to incent you to take specific action other than your belief in the mission and the continuation of the college. It's not like there's some grand, grand um, event. And so you see this, um, I, I don't know, I think it's a, a lack of willingness to um, forego some level of um, control over the identity. 
that a lot of schools go, well, we're not going to give control of this, uh, you know, 100-year-old institution to these other people. What are they going to do with our identity? We'll try to go it alone. And then you're right, a month before, you know, they realize, oh, wait, we don't have operating income, uh, operating, uh, we don't have any money, then we got to close. And it affects so many students. Yeah, my, I think the trustee problem is that trustees are conflicted. They're not independent. They are your, your, they're your best uh, donors. They're your cheerleaders. They are the people who love your institution. And so it's hard for them to be independent and look and say, you know, I love my alma mater, but maybe its continuation is not in the best interest of, of it. And so it, it really has much more to do. I, I don't think there's ill intent. I think it's just the love of the institution blinds people to, you know, the reality. That's a really good point. Nobody's ever brought that up before, but you're right. It is, it's not a completely objective uh, decision, right? It's like, even if if you personally have given money to a university and you go, okay, wait a minute, I've personally helped this university and now I'm voting for its demise somehow, or or at least in my eyes, it's demise somehow, even though that may not even be the case, it sure may seem like it's me at the time. And so I'd rather go it alone and try to give it its best shot. I could see how that would be a huge conflict. Yeah. Yes. I mean, trustees, you know, you go to trustee meetings and they talk about, you know, this is the, the this is the dining hall where I met my husband, you know, and this is the, you know, you know, so that's the kind of connection that people have to these places. And they, and and that doesn't necessarily make um, the best leaders when you have really hard decisions to be made. Wow, I love that point. I'm going to have to do another episode about that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, um, you've heard it here. And, and if you went through this episode and thought this, huh? Huh? you aren't the only one because at times John was talking, and I'm like, I have no freaking clue what he's talking about. But that's why you go to Hurdle Callahan. That's why if you're managing endowment, you bring in a chief investment officer uh, outside to help you uh, through managing um, millions of dollars, which is uh, not uh, for the faint of heart. He's John Griffith. He's an endowment specialist with Hurdle Callahan. John, we hope you had a good time on the podcast today. Thank you for bringing this incredible knowledge to, to the audience. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. With that, ladies and gentlemen, you know what I'm going to say. You've just ed upped. Experience Element 451's Engage Summit Conference this June and get ready to unleash the power of AI in higher ed marketing. Deep dive into how this emerging tech will revolutionize the education landscape from personalized student engagement to turbocharging your marketing efforts with AI. These sessions are guaranteed to help you smash your enrollment goals, connect with like-minded professionals, explore cutting-edge ed tech products and services, and leave with the knowledge to supercharge your institution's growth. Don't wait. Register now at engage.element451.com and seize your chance to lead the pack in the AI-driven education revolution. Use promo code EDUP50 for $50 off your registration. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucille, with contributions by Elvin Freitas, it's Higher Education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin. 